So, if you got your Bibles open to Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to start chapter 12 today, and I'm calling it the basis of anti-Semitism. That's the hatred of the Jews, and it's part one. So, I'll just pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and Lord, we're going to learn about our enemy, Lord, the enemy of the Jews, and Lord, the enemy of us, anyone who's a believer, and Lord, also really the enemy of anyone who's alive, because Satan's goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And if a person isn't saved, then Satan wants to destroy them by keeping them from coming to know Christ. So we just pray that you help us to gain a greater understanding of the battle of the ages, of good versus evil, of God seeking to win our souls for himself, and Satan seeking to win souls for himself. And that's what it all comes down to, Lord. So you've done everything to make it possible for everybody to be saved. But it's up to us. We have free choice to choose you. So help us to see how this is all working out in your story, Lord, in history and the future. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week in Revelation 11, 15 to 19, that was God's kingdom proclaimed, where an mighty angel proclaimed that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We saw that when God says something, it's as good as done, even if the event isn't scheduled to happen for hundreds or even thousands of years later. God is in control, and not only of world events, but also of the details of our individual lives. So that was a quick summary of last week. This week, we come to another vignette, another story that explains the various people, events, and organizations that are involved in the tribulation. So this week we look at Revelation 12, 1-17, but only covering the first nine verses in detail. The basis of anti-Semitism. It's Satan's ongoing persecution of the nation of Israel. So what we're going to see this week and next week as well is that the Jews are hated not because of any natural reason, but because of a supernatural reason. It's satanic. We'll see why as we go through. So, in a nutshell, chapter 12 summarizes Satan's ongoing persecution of the nation of Israel because of the promise of the first and second comings of the Messiah is all to do with Israel. It's all about the salvation of mankind. And this chapter gives us a fascinating insight into the ongoing persecution of Israel by Satan. And it starts with an example from the time of the birth of Christ and then goes on to the end of the tribulation. So, just to get the timeline right. So, here is the cross. So, when Jesus was alive on the earth. And the first example we're going to read about in chapter 12 is from when Jesus was born. and Or when he's about between one and two years old. And then there's another example which happens right up here at the midpoint of the tribulation. So basically here's the rapture. All the Christians go up. And those who don't go up in the rapture, those who aren't saved or born again, they go into the seven-year tribulation. And there's three and a half years and three and a half years. And then after that, that's a midpoint in the middle there. And after that, there's a thousand-year rule and reign. And I've got another slide there which blows up that middle bit. And so you can see just the rapture part, and you've got 
the three and a half years where Israel is under the peace agreement with the Antichrist. So he's made a seven-year peace agreement for this seven-year tribulation period while the church is in heaven. We're in heaven. But then he breaks his promise halfway through, and then for the last three and a half years, he turns and persecutes the Jews. He tries to kill them, but God protects them. Because he can't persecute them, he starts persecuting their offspring, which is the saints which believe during the tribulation. So that's basically what chapter 12 is in a nutshell. So you've got the tribulation, you've got two halves. Last week we looked at the first half and the two witnesses witnessing in this first half. This midpoint, lots of things happen. The mark is rolled out. People have to take the mark. If you take it, you seal your fate, you go to hell. If you don't, you'll be killed, but you'll go to heaven. That's good. <laughs> and, and the witnesses are also killed here. The covenant is broken here. So at the halfway point, things change. And we're going to see something today happen in heaven at the halfway point too. So that halfway point is a big deal. So in context, Revelation chapter 12 follows nicely after chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 11, we saw that the holy city Jerusalem, that's chapter 11 verse 2, will be trodden underfoot for the last 42 months or three and a half years. So that's the second half of the tribulation there. And that's after the two witnesses from Revelation are killed at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. So as I said before, the two witnesses minister or witness for Christ for the first half or the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation while the nation of Israel was still under the peace agreement. And uh, you can reference 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 and 3. So why is the seven-year tribulation broken into two three-and-a-half-year halves? What's the scripture reference for that? I mean, you see it as you go through Revelation, but is there a big plan? Is there like something that breaks this down in the Old Testament? Well, guess what? There is. At the halfway point or the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist becomes possessed by Satan, I believe, and he both overcomes and kills the two witnesses and breaks the seven-year peace treaty with Israel. And that is from Daniel 9.27. So it says in Daniel 9.27, the ruler or Antichrist will make a treaty with the people, Israel, for a period of one set of seven, that's seven years, but after half this time, that's three and a half years, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings, and as a climax to all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration, and that's an image of himself. And you can reference Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Until the fate or punishment decreed for this defiler, which who is the Antichrist, is finally poured out on him at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. So that's Daniel 9.27 explaining the big picture. So if you go back to there, that tribulation period is Daniel 9.27. And Revelation breaks it down even more. Okay. So again, it's at the halfway point or three and a half years into the tribulation that the Antichrist, the false messiah, the so-called man of peace, <laughs> reveals his true colors against Israel and tries to destroy them. He promised seven years of peace, but halfway through, three and a half years in, he breaks his promise and tries to wipe them out. 
But God intervenes and provides a place of refuge for the nation of Israel. He gives them wings like an eagle, we're going to read, probably next week. And he protects them in a special place for the last three and a half years of their seven-year tribulation. And again, we'll get into that more later. So one thing we need to understand before we get into Revelation 12 is the origin and purpose of the nation of Israel. Because if you don't understand that, then it's, you don't really get chapter 12. It's all about Israel. Israel is not just a central character in the tribulation, but also throughout all history, or well, at least from Abraham on. This chapter helps explain what will happen to them in the tribulation and why. So, when did the nation of Israel come into being as a people? Can someone tell me? Promise to Abraham. Very good, yeah. So the nation of Israel started when God called Abraham. And the scripture reference for that is Genesis 12, 1-3. And I'll read it out to you. It says, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So that's God calling Abraham out from Ur of the Chaldees, and he tells him to leave, but doesn't tell him where he's going. We know that he's going to go to the what we now call the promised land, the land of Israel. Now, 25 years later, Abraham and Sarah eventually have a son called Isaac. And he's the son of the promise. And that promise was given 25 years earlier in Genesis 12. Now, when Isaac is about 33 years old, God gives more information about this prophecy, about these covenant promises. And he gives them a specific reference to Messiah coming from the nation of Israel. God says to Abraham on Mount Moriah at the time when Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac, as a picture of Jesus being sacrificed in our place. In Genesis 18:18, 18, 18, it says, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now seed is descendants. It means in your descendants. But it's not actually descendants. It's descendant. It's singular. So one of Abraham's descendants, one of them, will cause all the nations of the earth to be blessed. So it refers to only one person. Now, which one person has caused all the nations to be blessed, all people on all the world to be blessed? It has to be Jesus. And we have a scripture reference for that. The scripture reference in the New Testament that confirms this and explains this is Galatians 3.16. It says, Now to Abraham and his seed, now notice there is a capital S, Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Notice that? The Bible explains the Bible. The seed is Christ. The seed is the Messiah, the Anointed One. The one who's going to come and save us from our sins. Now, this promise was passed on to only Isaac and not to any other of the children of Abraham from his other wives after Sarah died or from Hagar. And so we can read in Genesis 26 verses 2 to 5 when God is speaking to Isaac. Then the Lord appeared to him, Isaac, and said, 
Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to who? To Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed, again, the promise repeated, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So, the Messiah, his lineage is being narrowed down from a descendant of Abraham to a descendant of Isaac. Now, as you may remember, Isaac and Rebekah have two children. They're twins. And they fight. Even in the womb, they were fighting. <laughs> Smooth-skinned Jacob, the heel catcher, the deceitful one, and the red and hairy Esau, the one who cares nothing about spiritual things. Esau was rejected by God because of his rejection of God. But Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And that means governed by God. So the covenant promises of God that were initially given to Abraham were then passed on to Isaac and are now passed on to Jacob. So one person is given these promises. One person is in the lineage of Jesus Christ in these families. So it's Abraham, then it's Isaac, and now it's Jacob. So in Genesis 27, Isaac blesses Jacob. And in 28, he says, Genesis 28, 3 and 4, Isaac says to Jacob, May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples. And look at verse 4, it says, And give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So, what is Isaac giving to Jacob? He's giving him the blessing of Abraham, the promises given to Abraham. Now, later at Bethel, so years later, events have transpired. Jacob is running away from Esau, and God himself appears to Jacob, and he confirms personally the Abrahamic covenant, these promises, with Jacob. And that's Genesis 28, 13 to 15. It says, And behold, the Lord stood above it, that is, the ladder going up and down from heaven to earth. And he said to Jacob, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, again the promise is repeated, and in you and in your seed, one of your descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So do you notice that the promise of the Messiah was given to Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob? So the nation of Israel starts with Abraham, but it doesn't really grow very much. It stays as a single family until we get to Jacob. But then Jacob goes on to have 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And when Jacob is older, the nation of Israel, as they're known, 
they go to Egypt. They go down to Egypt. So that means Jacob and his 12 sons and all their families go to Egypt. And they, what happens there? They multiply like rabbits. <laughs> so they go down as a group of 70-odd people, and then they come out as probably 3 million people about 300 years later, roughly. So what is the main purpose or reason that God had for creating the nation of Israel? The Messiah. It was all about God's way of bringing the Messiah into the world. So Israel was God's tool for bringing salvation to the world. And he used a very faithless and disobedient nation to do this. It's quite amazing what he did, what he went through. But that's the purpose of his doing this. So now we come back to the book of Revelation. And again, to understand the book of Revelation, we need to interpret the signs and symbols. So we're going to go through this chapter and the signs and symbols here are actually quite easy to figure out. And the story is quite clear. So as I mentioned at the start, having an understanding of this chapter gives us a great insight into the spiritual battle going on behind the scenes, and it explains a lot of what we see going on in the earth, especially with how the world treats Israel with such unreasonable hatred. And again, hatred of the Jewish nation and the Jews is called anti-Semitism. Now, you know the United Nations, I think I, I can't remember the stat exactly, but out of like 22 resolutions against countries for violations of human rights, five were against other nations. You know, I don't know who they were, but there was like 17 against Israel. There's no bias. No, I can't see any bias there. <laughs> but that's just an example. So before we read the whole chapter together, we're going to get the background of who one of the main players is here and that is the woman. And so we're going to read verses 1, 2, and 5, and then do some simple detective work with a concordance. You know what a concordance is? It's where you look up words that are in the Bible and find out where they are in the Bible. And we're going to discover and explain who or what this mysterious symbol is and who her child is. So let's jump into Revelation 12. It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of twelve stars. It's like a necklace. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So the whole chapter keeps referring back to this woman. So we can't really progress until we find out who she is. So. Who is she? Well, you look up the sign. So if you go back into your concordance and you look up woman, sun, moon, stars, etc., you will find it's a passage from Genesis. So we'll read that passage. In Genesis chapter 37, verses 3 to 4 and 9 to 11, the context is Joseph. And Joseph is having dreams, and he has two particular dreams which he shares with his family. He's not in Egypt yet. This is the dreams he shares with his family before he gets there. So it says, Now Israel, who was also called Jacob, 
loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colours, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. And then moving down to verse 9, because he tells the first dream about the sheaves of wheat. The second one, it says, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. His father thought about this. So, I'm just going to put these two bolded bits up. It says, Notice that in Joseph's second dream, he says that the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. That reminds us of what we read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, right? And the interpretation is given in verse 10, where it says, Israel, or Jacob, gives the interpretation when he says, Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Now, practically we know what happened. They did. They went to Egypt. They all bowed down to him because Joseph was a prime minister. But the main thing here is that the interpretation is that who is the sun, moon, and eleven stars? It's Jacob and his wife and the brothers, right? It's the nation of Israel. Now, in Revelation 12, 1 and 2, we read that there were 12 stars, not 11. Why would there be 12 stars and not 11? Because now you're including Joseph, yeah? Because Joseph wasn't going to bow down to himself. So, if Joseph is put back with his brothers, then all the nation of Israel is represented by the, the 12 stars, the 12 brothers, the 12 sons of Jacob. So in verses 2 and 5 of Revelation 12, we read that the nation gives birth to a son. Now, given what we read in Galatians 3.16, remember the seed is who? Christ. The seed is Christ. The promised seed can be none other than the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So who is this male child that will rule the nations with a rod of iron and was caught up to God on his throne? Well, it has to be Jesus. It just has to be. There's no other logical answer. Jesus came down to earth from heaven, was born as a baby of a virgin, lived a perfect life, was crucified and killed for the sins of all mankind, was laid in a tomb, then resurrected from the dead, and then ascended into heaven where he is waiting for the Father's instruction or command to come and get his bride at the rapture. So now we understand who the woman is. We can understand Revelation chapter 12 to a large extent. So we're going to read the entire chapter now of Revelation chapter 12. So it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Who's that? Israel, yep. Then being with child, who's the child? Jesus. She cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Now, this one's pretty self-explanatory. Behold, 
a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars from heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, that's Jesus, and her child was caught up to God in his throne, that's the ascension. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. In verse 7, this is where Satan is thrown out of heaven. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. So this is the good angels against the bad angels. Nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. Now who is this great dragon? It's the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. So this chapter interprets itself. We know who the dragon is. It's Satan. It's the devil. Now, it says he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. That's the third of the angels who rebelled at the same time as he did. Verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. Now when the dragon, Satan, saw that he had been cast to the earth, he had lost his access to heaven. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, that's Israel. But the woman, Israel, was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's three and a half years, the second half of the tribulation. From the presence of the serpent or from the presence of Satan or the Antichrist. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So we'll cover all that last section next week, but now you see that the dragon just keeps on persecuting the woman and her offspring, which is people who also believe in her God, in Jesus. So, verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. So, sign. In the Bible, biblically, a sign is an event which is regarded as having some special meaning. So in John, the book of John, Jesus did signs. He performed signs. Like the wedding at Cana was his first sign. It wasn't called a miracle, it was called a sign. It meant something. It had a special meaning. So here, a great sign appeared. And this is the first of seven signs that John describes over the next three chapters. So Revelation chapter 12, 13, and 14. We're introduced to seven signs. So the first one is a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now, as we already know, this is Israel. It can only be Israel because of Joseph's dream. 
which we read previously in Genesis 37, 9-11. And just to remind you, in that dream, the sun represented Jacob, the moon represented Joseph, mother Rachel, and the eleven stars were the sons of Israel, which bowed down to Joseph. And again, why twelve stars here? Because Joseph is now among the tribes of Israel, or the other tribes of Israel. Now, in addition to this, another evidence that Israel is the woman is because in the Old Testament, Israel is often referred to as the wife of Jehovah and referred to as a woman. And so the references are there in your notes. So here's a summary of the seven signs or figures of the Great Tribulation that are introduced and described over the next three chapters. So first of all, we have the woman who represents Israel. The second sign is the dragon who represents Satan. The third one is the man-child, referring to Jesus. Israel birthed Jesus. The fourth one is the archangel Michael, the head of the angelic host, the head of God's good angels, God's army. Yeah. And we have the offspring of the woman, representing the Gentiles who come to faith in the tribulation. Now the last two, uh, chapters 13 and 14. So the beast out of the sea represents the Antichrist. That's the next chapter. And the beast out of the earth, representing the false prophet who promotes the Antichrist, is also coming. That's a preview of coming events. So after the next few weeks, as you read the book of Revelation, you already know the main outline of the book and also who the main figures or characters are. And it should start to make a lot of sense for you. So I encourage you to keep reading it and it'll become more and more clear to you. So today we're going to look at the first five signs, the woman who represents Israel, the dragon who represents Satan, the man-child referring to Jesus, the angel Michael, head of the angelic host, the good angels, and the offspring of the woman who represents Gentiles who come to faith in the tribulation, which is um, next week. So verse 2, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. So this child is Jesus. And in verse 5 it also says she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. So it has to be him. Now why in pain? Well, what were the conditions that Israel found themselves in at the time of Jesus' birth? Under the Roman Empire, yeah, they were being oppressed. There was a cruel oppression. The land was occupied and oppressed by the Roman Empire. So moving on to verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So, the dragon we know is Satan. And another sign appeared in heaven. This is our second sign. Okay, Satan, the dragon. So, this is not literally a great fiery red dragon. Okay, Satan is not literally a great fiery red dragon. The picture tells us a lot about who Satan is. So what do you picture of the character of someone who is described as a great red fiery dragon? <laughs> well, this guy is powerful, he's evil, he's fierce, he has a murderous nature and character. That's what dragons are. 
And John 10.10 confirms this character assessment on Satan. It says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. So, this dragon comes to steal, kill and destroy. And back to verses 3 and 4 in Revelation chapter 12. And having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. This is easier to explain when we get to chapter 13 because it's repeated there and there's more information given. So we'll skip that for now. And verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. And most people understand this to be Satan drawing away or causing one third of the angelic host rebel with him because it says in verse 9 his angels cast out with him so they were cast out at the same time they're cast out with him and elsewhere in the scriptures angels are referred to as stars like in the book of Job so where do the demons come from? Satan and the fallen angels make up the demons that go about causing havoc in this world and are part of the way that we are tempted. So we read about the fall of Satan in Ezekiel 28, 12-17 and Isaiah 14, 12-17. I'm not going to read them now for the sake of time. But here it reveals that at the same time as when Satan fell, one third of all the angels rebelled along with Satan. Now, that's a lot of angels, but the good thing is if only one-third rebelled, two-thirds are still faithful to the Lord. So that's a ratio of two good ones to one bad one. <laughs> it's good, eh? Now, it doesn't really matter because God is much bigger. We're not talking that, oh, Satan's God's you know, nemesis. No, no, no. God is the creator. Satan is a created being. Satan is nothing. So even if all the angels rebelled, it still wouldn't matter because God is in control. Now, some have this question, why did or how could the angels rebel? Well, basically, God never made an evil being. He made everything perfect. He made man perfect. He made the angels perfect. But he gave them free will. He made angels, principalities and powers, the various ranks of angels. And like humans, they have free will to love God and submit to him or to hate God and rebel against him. Now, many angels remain steadfast to God and they are described as Michael and his angels. That's the two-thirds who didn't rebel. But some chose, that's the one-third, to not abide in the truth. They revolted against the rule of heaven and became unchanging enemies of God and his kingdom. Now, angels, there's no repentance for angels. It's a one-off thing. It's one-time decision. There's no saviour for the angels. We should be very fortunate that we have a saviour and that we can reverse this process of sin and rebellion. So don't just take it for granted. We do not deserve to be saved. God could have been fair, it would have been fair, and justified in saying mankind has sinned, they can all go to hell. He didn't have to come and save us. It was our choice. It was our fault. So God in his grace did that. It's nothing that we deserved. All right, verse 4, it says, To devour her child as soon as it was born. So can you think of an event in history that matches up with this? 
what's that? King Herod, yeah, yeah. King Herod attempted to kill Jesus as a child when he was roughly two years old. So do you remember when the wise men were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod and instead go back another way? Well, when they tricked Herod, Herod was so angry and jealous that he killed all the babies under two years old in that Bethlehem area. That's a lot of baby boys to be killed. So let's read that scripture. It's Matthew 2, 12 to 13, and then 16 to 18. We'll skip a couple. So this is now talking about the wise men. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they, the wise men, should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Remember, this young child is the seed as prophesied in Genesis, yeah? Verse 16 in Matthew chapter 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise man, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. That's a quote from the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New. And this was also fulfilled throughout Jesus' life as Satan attacked him. For example, in John 8, 58-59, the Jewish leaders try to stone Jesus. And there's actually quite a number of times when they try and kill him. One time they try to throw him off a cliff. And also, Satan directly tried to attack Jesus, like when the storm threatened to sink the boat. In Mark four thirty-five to 41 you know, Jesus rebuked the storm. Now move on to verse 5 in Revelation. It says, She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So, who is this child who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron? Well, it's Jesus and Messiah. But is there a passage in the Old Testament which confirms this? Well, yes, there is. And when it says rule with a rod of iron, it means absolute control. There will be no rebellion allowed or tolerated. Okay, that's what it means. Rod of iron, absolute discipline. God will not allow any rebellion. There will be no war against God in the millennial reign. People have to submit to him. So Psalm 2 is the main passage in the Old Testament, so we're going to read all of Psalm 2. It's an awesome psalm. It gives us hope. We see our nations raging against God. We see our own government raging against God. But this puts everything into perspective. So Psalm 2. The Messiah's triumphant kingdom is its title. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that's the Father, and against his anointed, that is the Messiah, Jesus, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath 
and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Who's that? That's Jesus. Verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord, that is the Father, has said to me, that is the Son, Jesus, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Now that means given the privilege and status of the firstborn. Doesn't mean he was literally born. It means he was given privilege. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. That's when Jesus comes back. He rules the nations. Verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And now verse 10. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Jesus will rule this world for a thousand years with a rod of iron. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. Submit to him. Now there's another passage that refers to Jesus ruling the nations with a rod of iron, and this time it's in Revelation. So I'll put Revelation 19, 11-16 on the screen. And this is an awesome passage. This is us, the church, coming down on our white horses with Jesus on his white horse as he comes back at the end of the tribulation and defeats all the enemies and comes and starts his millennial, his thousand-year rule and reign. So it says this, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So this is Jesus. And the armies in heaven, now who's that? That's the church who was raptured and now coming back with Jesus, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, it's our righteousness in Christ, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth, that's Jesus' mouth, goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. That's a picture of the words that he speaks. Okay, And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus comes back to rule and reign and he is the judge when he comes back a second time. First time he came as a saviour, second time he comes back as the conquering king and the judge. Okay, back to verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So she bore a male child, refers to Jesus' birth, through Mary. Rule all the nations with a rod of iron, refers to the triumphant return of Jesus at the end of the tribulation. Now, it says a male child. Now, there's two choices. It could be Mary or Israel. But as we go through the rest of Revelation chapter 12, you'll find that Mary is not a good option. So it must be Israel, with Mary being a part of Israel. And it says her child was caught up to God and his throne. And this is a clear reference to the ascension of Jesus after he was resurrected. And the scripture for that is, it's Acts 1, 9-11. Now when he had spoken these things, 
while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So here we see Jesus ascending into heaven. And that corresponds to Revelation 12.5 where it says, And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Now verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So this is when, as we talked about at the very start, the Antichrist breaks his promise. He breaks his covenant with the nation of Israel. The covenant was for seven years. Halfway through exactly, like it said in Daniel 9.27, he breaks his promise. 1,260 days is half of seven years. It's three and a half years. So the woman flees into the wilderness. It says the woman fled into the wilderness. So he breaks his promise. He starts to attack Israel, but Israel is helped by God to go over to the country of Jordan, as we know it today. And there God feeds her and protects her for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So this helps us to understand with certainty that the woman is Israel and not Mary. Mary never had to go into the wilderness for 1,260 days. (laughs) So this event is future. It's part of Daniel's 70th week, the last seven years decreed for Israel. And again, just talking about the timeline, there's 1,260 days. So this reference to a three and one half year period connects these events with the final seven years of Daniel 9.27, the Daniel 9 prophecy. So again, Revelation 12.5 describes the ascension of Jesus. And Revelation 12.6 describes yet to occur events in the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years, the tribulation period, seven-year tribulation. Now, in between those two events, there's a long period of time. Okay. Now, in Bible language, in prophecy language, you call this a near-far break. Okay, A near-far break. So I'm just going to take a bit of time to explain to you a near-far break All right, and give you an example. So what it means is that there's a near-fulfillment and there's a far-fulfillment. Near-fulfillment and far-fulfillment. And for example, I'm going to put Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 3a. Now, part of it's in bold and part of it's not bold. The part in bold is the part that Jesus read out in Luke 4, 18 to 21. And he read it out and he said, this is fulfilled. But he stopped at a comma. (laughs) He stopped at the comma because the next bit is not fulfilled. Yet, it's coming. So within one passage, within three verses in Isaiah, you have prophecies regarding the first coming, near, and prophecies referring the second coming, far. So I'll read to you the Isaiah 61, 1-3. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, closes the scroll, 
puts it away, sits down and says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But if you keep on reading in Isaiah 61, it continues with, and the day of vengeance of our God. Ah, well now we're talking about the second coming. Now we're talking about 2,000 years later. <laughs> and it's only separated by a comma. Okay? Near fulfillment, far fulfillment. Near fulfillment, in this case, is the first coming of Christ. Far fulfillment is the second coming. And just to finish that scripture, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and he will comfort us when he comes back, and those who are believers, he will comfort them, and to console those who mourn in Zion. And there will be those believers in Zion who will be looking forward to his return. So again, Revelation 12, 5 is a near fulfillment. It's already happened. And then 12, 6 is a far fulfillment. It's not yet happened. It's a couple of thousand years different. So verse 6, it says, Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her. 1,260 days, three and a half years. So this in the Old Testament, we'll get more into this next week, but it's the Rock City Petra, south of the Dead Sea, but the biblical references actually refer to a more general area, specifically the area today represented by Jordan, and Petra is located within the borders of Jordan. Now, prepared. The word prepared is also used in John 14, verses 2 and 3. And what does it say there? Do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he goes on to say, I go to prepare a place for you. Yeah? So that's the same Greek word. God is preparing a place for the Jews for the last three and a half years. Everything is under his control. All right, and verses 7 and 8. Now for those who like wars, this is the ultimate war. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So, at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, after three and a half years, God is going to turn the tide against Satan. And it starts in heaven. A battle is going to take place that will deny Satan access to heaven. So, as we read previously, who's been accusing us day and night? Satan. He's right now accusing us day and night before the throne. But who's our defense lawyer? Who's our advocate? Jesus. So, Job chapter 1, 6 to 12 indicate that Satan did have access to the throne, did have access to heaven. But halfway through the tribulation, three and a half years in, there's this battle that occurs in heaven and he loses any access that he had into heaven. So this is the battle between the good angels led by Michael, the archangel, and the bad angels led by Satan. <laughs> and I'm really hoping that being a part of the church in heaven, I'll be able to watch this battle. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> It'll be exciting. So this is a battle between equals. The dragon represents Satan, as we know, and he most likely has the rank of archangel. He was the most prominent, most important angel before he fell. Michael is also an archangel. He's also one of the most powerful angels. So you have these 
equal ranking angels, and then you have their hosts underneath them. But remember that Satan is not a counterpart or the counterpart or equal of God. God has no counterpart. God has no equal. And I say this again, Satan is a counterpart or equal of Michael. But God is above everything. God is the creator. He is the one who made the angels. So, when is this battle fought? Again, it happens at the halfway point of the tribulation. Now, another reference that supports this is Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It says, At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. So, Michael, the archangel, his main job is to look after the nation of Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered. So Michael the archangel is looking after the nation of Israel and there's going to be a time of trouble. It's called in the Bible Jacob's trouble because it's Jacob, the nation of Israel, going through this. And it's talking about the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. And then it goes on in verse 8. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And this shows us that up to the time of the angelic battle, which happens halfway through the tribulation, Satan does have access to heaven. And then verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So here we have all the titles for our enemy. Dragon. Serpent of old. What does that make you think of? Serpent of old. Garden of Eden. Serpent who tricked Eve, yeah? So this is linking all of history up. Right from the Garden of Eden, right up till the end of the world. So these titles describe Satan as vicious, an accuser, an adversary, and as a deceiver. Now the devil, it means... It's from the Greek diabolos, <laughs> like diabolic, <laughs> and has a meaning of defaming or slandering. So it means to slander or defame. And he is a master accuser of the brethren. So we'll go into how he accuses us next week. And he was cast to the earth. Now Satan has four falls or judgments. So the four falls or judgments of Satan are these. He goes from glorified to profane when he rejected God. He wanted to be God himself. Then in the halfway point of the tribulation, he goes from having access to heaven to not having access to heaven. That's Revelation 12. And then in Revelation 20, he's bound for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. And then at the end of that, also in Revelation chapter 20, he goes and he's cast into the lake of fire for eternity. So that's the history of Satan in a nutshell. Luke 10.18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. This is when the disciples were casting out demons. They're going around casting out demons. I was saying, even the demons are subject to us. God had given them power over the demons. It's a prophetic look ahead to the time when Satan would be cast out. 
His angels were cast out with him. Again, his angels, it's the one third of all the angels who rebelled and joined Satan, his rebellion against God. And that links up with verse 4 where it says, the third of the stars of heaven. So, again, since Satan only drew a third of the stars of heaven, it means that two-thirds remain faithful to God. Two-to-one ratio. Now, summary, what have we learnt today? The woman clothed with the sun, moon, and twelve stars represents Israel. One of God's purposes for the nation of Israel was to bring the Messiah into the world so that he could be the sacrifice for our sins and purchase the world back to himself by his blood, by giving his life. Now, because of this, Satan, fill in the word, Satan something, the nation of Israel. Hates, yeah, hates, persecutes, tries to destroy the nation of Israel, and throughout history has been trying to destroy it. We'll get into that more next week. Satan and his demonic angels are our enemy and they accuse and condemn us all day and all night. We read that. When Satan fell, one third of all the angels also rebelled against God. And that's the demons we have around today. Satan persecuted the nation of Israel and tried to stop God's plan by trying to kill Jesus. And Satan has always been trying to destroy the Jews. A battle is coming. At the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, when Michael and his good angels defeat Satan and his bad angels, and they will no longer have access to heaven. And for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, or otherwise called the Great Tribulation, Satan is confined to the earth and causes havoc. And we also learnt that at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, Satan, the Antichrist, breaks his promises and attacks Israel that God provides a place of refuge for them for the last half of the seven-year tribulation. So that's three and a half years or 1,260 days over in the nation of Jordan. So I'm going to finish with an application. This is all very interesting, but what does it mean for me now? So our battle with Satan and his demons is spiritual. It's truth versus deception. It's fear versus faith okay it's truth versus deception it's fear versus faith i'm just going to read two passages for you to finish up which will god willing encourage you so the first one is ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 to 13 it says finally my brethren be strong in the lord and in the power of his might put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the plans of the devil or schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's all the ranks of angels. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. So how do we fight Satan? Put on the armor of God. And that passage continues by talking about being in prayer. So be in prayer, be in the word, put on the armor. And in regards to the attacks against the believer, 
Satan and his demons were defeated and disarmed at the cross. Like the disciples were given power over the enemy, we have power over the enemy. So let's read a few verses from Colossians to finish up. Colossians 2, 13-17 You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive in Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He cancelled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. That's Satan and his angels. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Isn't that cool? Through Jesus, victory on the cross, we also have victory. He's cancelled the record of the charges against us. All our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus. In verse 16 it continues, So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink, or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths, for these rules are only shadows of the reality yet to come, and Christ himself is that reality. So, you don't have to try to be good. You can't be good enough. You just trust in what God has already done for you. And so don't forget, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free to be the people God made us to be in Christ. So put on your armor, focus on loving God, make your relationship with God the most important part of your life, your highest priority, and you will walk in victory. And that's it. It's as simple as that. And we're going to spiritual warfare more next week, specifically about how we are condemned by Satan. As well as finish chapter 12. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we have victory over the enemy. Lord, Satan still has access to heaven and he still has this ability to condemn and he does his best. But Lord, we have this armor. We can resist him. We can stand firm. We can draw near to you and you will draw near to us. We thank you for that, Father. We thank you that we have this place of security. Lord, you are our rock of refuge. You are our shield. You are our high tower. You are our protector. And Lord, in you we are declared innocent. We are not guilty. Lord, no one can condemn us. Help us to put aside all those fiery darts that Satan throws at us and to rest in your great love and enjoy the peace and joy that results in abiding in you and spending time with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.